Well, earlier this month, Conservative leader Andrew Scheer put out a news release talking about gang crime and gang-related homicides in this country and outlining the plan, the Conservative plan to deal with that, saying that a Conservative government would deal swiftly and firmly with gang crime as part of their overall plan, and that would lead to a safer Canada. But what about the promises in this release, could they actually be achieved in this country? Well, joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this is Neil Boyd. He is a criminology professor at SFU. Uh, Neil Boyd, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, a lot of promises in this, uh, things from no parole for anybody who is in a gang to uh, tougher sentences. What is your take on what some of these uh, promises are in the Conservative plan? Well, some of them are simply um, appear to reveal a fundamental ignorance of existing law. Um, some of them are just not possible and, and, and really don't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, the issue for people who are um, committing these brazen crimes on our streets is not one of punishing them to a greater extent. They're already willing to use deadly force against each other. The, the key is to make their arrest, their apprehension, um, sw- more swift uh, to to be able to to uh, prosecute them, and then on the other end of the continuum to try to dissuade people from becoming involved in this kind of lifestyle. But the idea that ramping up penalties is going to have anything to do with crime by gangs, by or- organized crime, it's there's just no evidence to support that claim. Is it something? Does it? Is it then? Does it seem like it's more to make people feel as though they would be safer if uh, these things were brought into place? I think that's it. I mean, I think part of the I, this is a pitch. It, it's got it's got no relation to fact. It's got no relation to what's possible. For example, when you say that you know there should be automatic revocation of parole, well, that's not the way the parole system works, and and. Um, these judgments are made on the basis of set criteria. He he wants to throw out the criteria. He he talks about gangs and, and, and as if a gang is a legal concept. There's there's no description of a gang uh, in the criminal code. It's, he's throwing this out there to make Canadians think that somehow this is the fault of government. The government, the, the liberal government, is is somehow responsible for for what exists today. And and. But but all of his suggestions either um, are impossible uh, or uh, reflect a, a, a woeful ignorance of the existing law. And and so I, I think it's a pitch. It's a bit like Donald Trump just uh, lashing out in anger, um, you know, a lot of rhetoric but no reality. And, and so what he's saying is a mix of untruth and, and uh, hyperbole. Uh, and, and you touched on this one. One of the ideas in there uh, is, is that idea of identifying gangs in the criminal code. And I guess that there's a comparison being made saying that it's similar to uh, that a terrorist organization could be is, is, um, is in the criminal code. But is that just something you're saying that that just wouldn't work? Well, you have to be able to, uh, to, to, to make the claim, you know, if, if this is an organized, you, don't, you can't just assume that people are involved in organized crime. And again, he's, he's using the word gang as if it's a legal concept. And, and in fact, what we look at are organized criminal conspiracies in the, in the code. So um, there is a lot of distortion in, in what he's saying. And, and I suspect that he's, he's pitching it as Donald Trump would to a, to a kind of hardcore base. Um, you know, he's not really 
that careful doesn't really want to pay close attention to what the law is he he wants to to lash out and and to get fearful ignorant people to believe him and when he when he talks about or puts in there as well the mandatory minimums as far as for something with a, fi- a gang activity yeah. or a gang offense aren't there already pretty uh, oh, the penalties, penalties? Are, yeah the penalties are very severe i mean you know for uh, for first-degree murder, it's uh, 25 years without parole. Um, and uh, for consecutive murders, I mean, people are now uh, going to spend their entire lives in jail if they commit uh, a couple of homicides that are classified as first-degree murder. Um, and, and again, I think we have to recognize that these are people who are willing to shoot each other in broad daylight. So they're not likely to be deterred by a manipulation of the penalties for certain kinds of gang crime. Uh, what we need to be focused on is um, how to uh, intercept their work, how to, uh, how to make arrest more possible. Not, not the, t- the tough penalty line, it's, it's, uh, it's very Trumpian in, in its rhetoric. It, it, it's, it's, it, anybody who's involved in this area knows that penalties aren't the key. It's, it's um, a, more, a greater certainty of arrest that's critical. It reminds me a little bit of when we've talked about the number of guns on the streets in any city, really. We talk about Surrey and Vancouver simply because that's our province. But but the idea of, of bringing in a ban on guns in a city or, or such and going after the, the legal lawful gun owners, they're not the ones that are the problem. It might be easy enough to take their guns away, but they're not the ones that are out, as you mentioned, shooting each other in broad daylight. No, I think that's correct. I mean, the one the, the people who are carrying um, handguns as part of a criminal lifestyle are the people that we need to be concerned about. And does it take away then from the conversation? And one of the other things too uh, that uh, that stuck out to me was the idea of revoking parole for gang members. And as you said too, it's not as though somebody who's involved in a gang is going to stop in their tracks and think, "Oh, I shouldn't do this because if I get convicted, then I'm never going to get parole." Uh, but does it also take that power away? I mean, isn't that the whole reason that we have parole boards and we have people in the legal system that make those decisions? Right, and I, I think that's correct. We also know that there are people who leave gang life behind. That um, you know, these are people who who come and speak at conferences and talk about um, public events, and they talk about why they left that life. So it's quite possible that a person during the course of a sentence might undergo change, and we might want uh, to to be able to have that person paroled. So the idea that you would simply revoke um, as as a part of a as a part of a poorly defined legal status, he's not really offering any. idea as to um, who's going to be subject to this uh, revocation of parole other than members of a gang, which is not a legal concept at all. So th- there's, there's so much that suggests that this is just um, puffery and uh, isn't really a substantive attempt uh, to respond to what is a significant problem. And just before I let you go, you mentioned this as well, that idea of, of getting people to not get into that life in the first place. How do we go about doing that? Because we've had forums, we've had meetings, we've yeah. had people call for this, uh, but it is a very difficult thing. I think prevention is the toughest ask in criminal justice. You know, we look at it in the context of drug use, we look at it in the context uh, you know, of substance abuse, we look at it in the context of uh, involvement in gangs. Um, when we had the four pillars, for example, the, the, the pillar that was prevention it was always the toughest to figure out. Um, and, you know, these are 
issues around family, around community, and uh, creating a, a context in which gang membership is simply not something that individuals would want to pursue. Um, but, uh, but how we do that in a systematic way, uh, in a way that uh, provides us with the social safety that we all want, um, th- that's, a difficult, that's a difficult ask. All right, we will we will save that ask for another day. Uh, Professor Boyd, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. We have been talking a fair amount about Surrey, uh, particularly because of all of the discussion around transit and the scrapping of the LRT and the plans to move ahead with SkyTrain instead. And we heard from former mayor of Surrey, Diane Watts. She was speaking with Simi Sarah yesterday. Uh, we've heard from Doug McCallum, who is now the current mayor once again. And uh, Stuart Parker, who actually ran for Surrey Council uh, this year as a member of the group Proudly Surrey is joining us on the line now. He has written a piece about Surrey and uh, some issues with that city. And uh, Stuart Parker joins us now. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Thanks very much, Jill. It's good to be here. Uh, You've written about this uh, in the Georgia Strait, talking about uh, Surrey, the one-party state. Uh, What are some of your concerns with how uh, the council is made up in Surrey right now? Well, I mean, we went into the election with a pretty strong concern around a problem that not just Surrey, but many cities have, which is the disproportionate nature of its election results. Fifty three percent of us voted against the party that now holds all but one seat on council. And so we had proposed some improvements to the voting system to deal with that. But it's clearly a bigger issue than that. And one of the things that really struck us was after the election, Linda Annis, the one member of the incumbent party that was able to win, um, in a normal democracy, uh, Councillor Annis would be the voice of the 53 percent who voted against the uh, the current government. And we would expect her to bring forward our issues, our concerns and advocate for the platform that she had run on during the election. But instead, um, she did what um, the losers of elections now typically do in Surrey, which is that she's effectively crossed to the governing party and is now voting for all the policies that she ran against in the election because she thinks it's the job of Surrey City Council to always be unanimous. Uh, so do you think that people that voted for Linda Annis are feeling that they're not being represented? Well, certainly. I mean, that's what we're hearing all, all over the place, particularly people who have supported uh, the light rail transit. Um, the idea that um, uh, a government governments would spend eight years securing $1.6 billion in funding from the feds and province only to have it just sent back um, – seems a a pretty foolhardy move politically. And uh, so I think many of the people who had expected some level of fiscal prudence, uh, never mind vision on transportation policy, figured that Linda Annis, having sought a mandate to build that LRT, um, would advocate for it. 
And and not to speak for her, obviously, I don't know the reasoning behind how she's voting or her reasoning for what she's doing on council now. But is it possible that she realizes that as the one person elected as part of Surrey First, the, the former uh, slate that had council, she is one voice, but it's Doug McCallum's team that's going to they're going to vote through what they want to vote through. Absolutely. But I think that um, that's where we get to the larger criticism that um, that we're making here Um, in a democracy. One of the reasons that democracies um, are better at meeting U.N. development targets, have better infrastructure. Normally, when a democracy is functioning, what happens is there's a government and there's an opposition And the opposition hounds the government about its policies. And the the opposition connects the public square outside of the governing chamber to the government. And the result of that is that governments are held to account and they institute their policies more responsibly, more effectively, and more cost-effectively. The purpose of an opposition is not to stymie the government, it's to improve the quality of the government by holding its decisions to account and rigorously examining them and criticizing them in public. And that's why there's uh, often a development gap between places with a healthy public square and places that lack that. And that's what I went off and did after, uh, after Councillor Annis's vote. I looked at broader international research on, uh, on this because we've seen this pattern in Surrey for a long time. And what I, I think we can see is that like an, uh, like an underdeveloped country in um, the global south, uh, what tends to happen in Surrey is that it has a curtailed public square and no effective opposition. And that means that nobody debugs policies and that the policies that are enacted often have very little public buy-in. It is it is a different one in, in that even if you compare right now Surrey and Vancouver, and Vancouver certainly has a mix of different parties, whereas Surrey tends to to vote in the, the, uh, the party rather than, than having a mix. Well, and I think but that's because Vancouverites, I mean, we've all been sh- uh, saddled with the same crappy electoral system. It's just that Vancouverites have had about 40 years longer to practice at getting around this voting system. This voting system does normally tend to produce one-party governments. It's just that Vancouverites um, are so strategic in their voting that usually the people who vote, when people vote in Vancouver, they vote, uh, they often vote a mixed slate and they often, uh, because they know they're having to choose both the opposition and the government. In most municipalities, people just focus on choosing the government. So I think that if we fix the electoral system, it would produce a more diverse council. But what's been happening in Surrey uh, really since about 2005 is something a more diverse council wouldn't fix. The results of the 2005 election were that Diane Watts won as an independent as mayor and that both the school board and the council were a mix of two parties. But what happened was that Surrey First was created 
And the members of all the parties, uh, these three disparate groups, all joined into one. And it's that really, I think, is the moment where Surrey's one-party state culture crystallized. And so what would you propose instead then, as far as, because there are people in Surrey that would that might challenge that or would argue that and say, well, Surrey is growing extremely fast. It's one of the fastest growing places in Metro Vancouver. Uh, yes, there are concerns about having enough spaces in schools to keep up with the development, but there are many who would argue that Surrey is doing quite well. Well, Surrey is doing quite well in the sense that it is a prosperous city. I can't uh... It posted the biggest budget surplus of any city in the Lower Mainland. Um, uh, The fact that 30 cents of every tax dollar wasn't even spent last year indicates that Surrey is a rich, prosperous place. And yet our community centers are further apart than anywhere else in the Lower Mainland. And yet we have these huge problems with our school infrastructure, and we can't even complete our sidewalk network. I think that the other parts of Surrey are running well. Businesses are running well. Um, Homeowners are doing well. The thing that's missing is not that Surrey isn't working, it's that its government isn't working. And that means that when tax dollars, uh, when people pay their money in property taxes, those dollars are mismanaged. And much like a Middle Eastern petrostate, people get so little value for money because there isn't a public sphere where policies can be debugged, debated and contested. All right. Well, Stuart, we'll have to leave it there. It's an interesting read, definitely. But thank you so much for joining us, for talking about this today. Uh, Appreciate your time. Okay, thank you very much. Bye-bye. Well, as of today, cannabis has been legal in this country for exactly one month. So did anything change? Have we seen any big developments in the past month? Uh, Joining us to talk about this is Kyla Lee, a Vancouver-based lawyer. Kyla, thanks so much for being with us this morning. Thanks for having me. Have you seen anything as far as tickets or differences in the past month since uh, cannabis was legalized? I mean, not significantly. We have had clients who've been issued tickets for having open cannabis in their car or for smoking or vaping uh, while in a vehicle. But, you know, significant numbers of criminal charges that were predicted simply haven't come to fruition. Which sounds like uh, that's a good thing and that that's uh, what people were kind of concerned about. It is absolutely a good thing. And I think it's a testament to the fact that the police were already prepared to deal with this. They already had training. We already had provisions in the criminal code that were being used. And a testament to the fact that cannabis users in this country were already using it responsibly and were already making responsible decisions when it comes to driving. Uh, You mentioned a few tickets, and it seems like looking at in Vancouver, I think the number was 18 uh, violation tickets. Uh, But as you mentioned, it's for things such as people having cannabis in a vehicle that it wasn't properly stored or a passenger um, maybe had it out. Is it a question of then do you think it's education on people that, that people just need to make sure they know what the laws are? Yes, absolutely, because those two laws are new um, as of October 17th. Prior to that, the police would just seize your cannabis in in Vancouver. You would never be charged for a simple possession offense, and you'd be sent on your way. So it's just an issue of education, and as the public learns more about when they can and cannot have cannabis and smoke cannabis, we're going to see those numbers decreasing as well.
Uh, they did also say, or the Vancouver numbers showed that there was uh, there were some 24-hour driving suspensions handed out uh, during a roadblock campaign, and these were specific uh, to cannabis impairment. Uh, we talked before the legalization about the testing of this. Do you know if police or how police are testing for cannabis impairment? Right now, they're just using sort of the classic investigative techniques. So looking at somebody's behavior and their driving pattern, coupled with training in things like standardized field sobriety testing and the drug recognition evaluation. VPD has not adopted any saliva testing mechanism yet. Um, and so it is just sort of classic policing. And, and is that what we expected? Because there seemed to be a lot of attention paid to the, the dragger test and uh, some concerns about if testing like that was going to be brought in. There was a lot of attention and a lot of concerns, and our office as well voiced a, a number of significant concerns about it. And thankfully, the police were really receptive to those concerns. And I think a lot of police forces across this country, as a result of concerns that were raised and shared through the media, um, made a smart decision not to jump on the bandwagon of the newest technology before they were confident that it could be used fairly and effectively at the roadside. Uh, do you know if any police agencies are using uh, the the dragger test? Apparently, the uh, Saskatchewan RCMP have just uh, put eighteen out onto the road, and I think around the last twenty four hours or so. So, um, we're going to finally see some test cases dealing with the dragger drug test five thousand coming to the courts. And any idea on how that will unfold? My prediction, um, as it's always been, has been that the uh, use of that equipment will be found to be unconstitutional and a violation of several charter rights. And, and do you think that's why, and not that, uh, not that you would know the inner workings of the, the minds of the police stations, but is that likely why we didn't see this test rolled out on any kind of uh, big scale or uh, are seeing other agencies are seeing widespread use of it? Yes, the, the equipment is expensive, and so it's a huge investment to make if it's going to be found to be unconstitutional. And there's also a number of operational requirements with the equipment. It's not very effective in cold temperatures, and that was another reason the police explained they were concerned about using it. They wanted to use something that would get reliable results to protect the public and to protect people against wrongful arrest. Uh, you mentioned as well that, that you've had a few clients and not to go into the, the fine details of that, but is that is that people much like we've seen in the past when it's uh, impaired driving by alcohol, people who are fighting tickets? Yes, it's, uh, it's dealing with 24-hour prohibitions and the tickets for having the cannabis in the vehicle. We haven't seen um, any criminal charges for drug-impaired driving specific to cannabis. Um, yet. <laughs> um, I'm sure that they will come. Um, part of the delay in that uh, obviously comes from the amount of time it takes to get a blood test result. Um, so people who've had their blood or urine taken usually have to wait about 119 days for a result. So those charges we won't see until a couple months after legalization. Hmm. That seems, is that a long time or to, to have to wait for that? It is a long time, and it is concerning from a scientific perspective. It actually is not good to test the sample that long after it's been collected. Um, but it is sort of the standard time frame that um, we've been seeing in British Columbia for the last several years when it comes to blood testing for alcohol. And do you have the same concerns that you've had in the past with the, the rights of police or the ability, I suppose, of police when it comes to the suspension to, to be able to do that on the side of the road and to be able to, to take that route? 
I do have concerns about that. I have concerns that it's going to be overused. And especially now that we have legal cannabis in Canada and the United States still has not legalized it nationally, um, having a 24-hour prohibition for drugs on your driving record can have significant implications in crossing the border. Um, And so I have concerns that if people get them and they don't fight them, uh, they may be denied entry into the United States. And there are several examples where that has already happened. Uh, because that's one of the big was one of the big questions I'm sure it remains one of the big questions too is that uh, as you mentioned it is legal here but certainly people don't want something an activity here to then keep them from going into the states and do we know would it be automatic if you have that on your record on your license that uh, you would be stopped it's not automatic it is up to the discretion of the individual border officer but Generally speaking, if they believe that you've done something that is illegal in Canada that would constitute a crime in the United States, that's a, um, an easy ground for um, denying you entry and for putting a ban on your entry. Uh, so as we stand then at the one-month mark, do we, is it, did it unfold kind of how you predicted or do we need more time to really see uh, Let the Dust Settle? We do need more time to let the dust settle. You know, we've been experiencing these cannabis shortages and there are people who are abstaining until they can access a legal source for their cannabis. Um, And again, the police need more time to get results of blood tests back. But I don't expect even after we let a few months pass, we're going to see very much in the way of significant increases. I think Canada, much differently than the U.S., has had a more relaxed attitude towards cannabis. So we don't see the same increases in use that uh, we do in in the U.S. after certain states have legalized cannabis. All right. We'll leave it there. Kyla Lee, always great to talk to you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, my next guest has uh, written a paper that takes a look at the human impact on the evolution of species and some of the changes based on human influence might surprise you. Uh, Sarah Otto joins me on the line now, University of BC researcher, and this paper was published on Wednesday uh, in a pretty prestigious journal. Uh, Sarah, uh, I know you also go by Sally. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, walk us through what the, what were you looking at as far as researching uh, the human influence and the influence and the impact that humans have on uh, the evolution of species? So this is a paper where I step back. I'm an evolutionary biologist, but I stepped back from my own research and that of my students and took a look across all of the studies that my colleagues were doing around the world to look at evolution um, as impacted by humans. And I I think that the story is quite remarkable. My claim in this paper is that humans have altered the course of evolution, changed the tree of life more than any other species has ever done within the course of a century. And we're finding that at all levels and all sorts of quirky ways that evolution has now changed because humans are one of the dominant selection pressures on the planet. And so what, what are some of the ones that stick out to you that uh, where, where species have changed because of human activity and behavior? Well, some of them we knew uh, from really uh, large studies. For example, fish are now not as long because we tend to fish, our nets tend to catch the bigger and faster growing fish. So fish species are now um, 50% shorter across many studies 
than they used to be at a, um, when they reach maturity. So we knew things like that, but th- some of the ones were really quirky, like uh, in lakes where there's a lot of um, hook fishing, and the mouths of fish are, have evolved to be smaller to avoid the hooks and to avoid our, our um, fishing pressure. Another kind of quirky example is that near roads, the wings of swallows have evolved to be shorter and um, um, to avoid the cars. It turns out that cars and building strikes are a major cause of mortality um, in Canada and the United States. In Canada, 40 million birds die each year from strikes of bird to um, buildings or cars. Well, it turns out that the birds that are killed are more likely to have long wings and less maneuverable, and the ones that are surviving are the ones with short wings. And how so did those you? Are just a couple of the quirky examples. That is that is fascinating. But how did you study that, or how did you? How were you able to come to that conclusion? Right. So this is where it's not one person's work. It's really a, a large number of people's work. So studies, for example, on the on the cliffs, the wallows will um, take a look at the length of bird wings near roads and then in more remote areas. And they also they also went and they drove along and found all the bird kills and measured the wing length of the ones that had died to to as evidence that selection is acting against the birds with the longer wings. That it really is uh, fascinating to to watch that and, and to see that happening. Um, th- those are the, the more quirky ones, as you said. But the the research also looks at, uh, I suppose, what we should be. Uh, a, whole, a, a bit alarmed by, or the the fact that we're seeing larger animals or some animals disappearing That's altogether. Right. That's right. So uh, evolution is being changed at this within population level, like I was talking about, shorter wings being favored over longer wings. But we're also pruning the tree of life, and we're doing it in non-random ways. Humans have caused the extinction of over half of the large-bodied mammals. This is not just in the last 100 years, but over the last 50,000 years. We've lost half of the large mammals um, that roam this planet. We're also, uh, the, the species that tend to go extinct are also those that um, like pristine environments, that are specialists, that tend not to have very broad ranges, and that tend not to be able to um, live with humans alongside them. So those parts of the tree of life are being lost, going extinct, leaving species that can tolerate the ways in which we're changing the planet. And is it something then, like you said, it's not even just the last, the last 100 years, but is it something that, that if human activity started to change now, uh, that we could prevent perhaps that happening in the future? I think so. I think we really need to think about on a planetary scale, reducing the, um, the impacts of humans trying and have higher density living, ensure higher productivity agriculture so that we don't um, just continue to expand and expand. And uh, as it is, we've already um, really uh, reshaped the landscape. Very few of the, there's there's very little wildlife left in the planet. And actually Canada has some of the most, uh, the best remaining wild, um, wild spaces on the planet. Well, those are really worth protecting. So that we have some places that where nature kind of continues to thrive. And you've also taken a look, though, at uh, some species that are actually that are doing very well. That that humans the they're they're thriving in spite of uh, humans building more buildings or taking over more of their 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 environment. That's right. Uh, evolution happens all around us all the time, and. 
So some species are quite able to um, cohabit with humans and some that we want and some that we don't want. For example, mosquitoes have evolved a form, it's called the molestus form, which seems perfectly appropriate, to live in subways. And they've actually evolved a preference to bite humans rather than their preferred host of birds. So, yes, evolution is happening all around us and some species are thriving in our built environment. But some of them, like rats and mosquitoes, aren't exactly the ones that we <laughs> want to have thriving. No, I think if you were asked people to make a list of the top ones, those ones probably wouldn't be uh, near the top <laughs> no. for sure. Um, no. And coyotes as well. Were they, they, coyotes were on the, uh, the list of ones that are doing well. Um, yes, the, the, the more generalist um, animals, the ones that can both survive in human uh, urban forests, for example, and can um, eat a, a wide variety of prey are doing better. Uh, plus, plus they're not hunted. The other ones, a lot of the um, species extinctions have been due to hunting. Uh, so what, what, do you, what is your biggest takeaway then from this research as far as what would you like people or what would you like people to take away from this? Well, that evolution has been happening on this planet for something like 4 billion years. And uh, that, that incredible diversity of life and of those and kind of natural process is um, being reshaped in a dramatic way and changing rapidly. And one of the things that I think this relates to also is looking forward. Climate change is uh, an, an increasing pressure, selective pressure in a lot of species. We're seeing species of pink salmon migrating back into the, um, into the rivers two weeks later than they used to do. And, I mean, sorry, two weeks earlier. And if this continues to change and we continue to see uh, massive climate change, we're going to really reach, uh, really change the, um, the course of evolutionary history on this planet. And I think that's, that's yet another reason that we have to really curb our human impacts. And interesting, you mentioned the salmon too. Even uh, people are surprised when we see some of the species, the warmer species off the coast of BC or the, the, That's right. the things that we, w- we wouldn't have seen several years ago. That's right. What was it, a sperm whale up in the Arctic? Just And salmon up in the Arctic. Arctic char are normally up in the Arctic, but now salmon have uh, migrated up into the most remote parts of the Arctic because of um, climate warming. All right. Well, it is a very, very interesting paper. And I thank you so much for taking some time with us this morning. I'll let you go, but thank you again for your time today. Thank you so much, Jill, for having me on the show.